Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. He was the first American League pitcher in the DH era to throw 215 innings in a season and walked fewer than 30 batters. How dumb does this trade look look if, if John Olerud turns out to be below league average in the long run? One second, Guzman also holds the record for most wild pitches in a season. Yeah, I felt that. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to episode number 226 of Artificial Turf Wars. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. This is only a test. If there were actual baseball, you would be listening to actual baseball facts. I am your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined by the marvelous Joshua Housem. Josh, how are you doing? mosh uh, i mean i just got called marvelous so like yeah you know, I, I can't really complain hmm. i've moved down the alphabet a little bit from my usual range i thought we'd, we'd try some other adjectives uh none of them untrue i want to make that absolutely clear to people so we don't have a lot of present baseball to talk about but baseball has a long and storied history and we remember the teams of yesteryear and we we were talking back and forth uh and we thought what about a retrospective um maybe we pick a couple players from one era of the blue jays we talk about those players uh we see how it goes and if there's still a lockout at the end of another couple weeks then we might pick a different era and we might uh, dig in a little bit deeper to those players and that seemed like a good idea to us and we're going to run with that until it seems like a bad idea sound fair i think so I guess that might have been a question more to the listeners, but we don't care what your answer is because we're going to do it. <laughs> it's just we can't so hear you. The rhetorical <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll hear about you on Twitter if that was really a horrible idea, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you, might, you might tell us not to do another one, but you can't stop us from doing this one. <laughs> so the era I think we kind of honed in on, I called it 1984 to 1992. Maybe I should have extended that to 1993 because I wasn't thinking. But um, yeah, so this is... 
once the Blue Jays' devious plans for becoming good by uh, you know mining prospects from from Central America and uh, drafting well and all of these other things start to come together under Pat Gillick, uh, the Blue Jays were very good to great, but could never break through into the World Series for this this up until 1991, and then finally 1992, 1993, we got there. Um, which means that players who are iconic in Blue Jays history, a lot of them come from this era. So it. We are not picking the greatest two, but we thought we would pick a pitcher and a hitter that stood out to us or or were integral to this era for us uh, over the long term, and we talk about them. So I, I let you pick a pitcher because you're a pitcher for the first one of these. Who'd you pick? Yeah, so I, I think that from this era, the guy that gets the most focus for essentially leading the team and the pitching staff is Dave Steed, but the guy that doesn't get talked about as much is Jimmy Key. And I like I like Jimmy Key a lot. And I've always that's not a secret for anyone who listens to this podcast. I nope. mean, how many times have I complained about him not being on the level of excellence? But so I I want to talk about Key because one of the things, like you're talking about this era, right? And they started to get good, as you said, in 1984, really. In 1983, they weren't bad either. But you know, Dave Steeb was a top starter for them starting in 1980. They had Jim Clancy still. They got Doyle Alexander in at one point. But Jimmy Key, it wasn't until he came in that they really had that solidified one, two, three, four in their rotation. And his first year as a full-time starter was 1985, and he had put up a three ERA in 35 games. And that's the year they won the most games the team has ever won. Yep, the only time they've hit triple digit. Was it 99 or 100? 99. 99. Almost triple digit, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think... In that era, Key and Steve were like, like you know, Laurel and Hardy uh, level of expectation that they would be equally uh, as good as one another year in year out. Yeah, I mean they they were both constantly among the lead leaders in stats. Like you know, Jimmy Key is still the only Blue Jay pitcher ever to lead the majors in ERA. He's many of them have led the league. Uh, they were one and two at the top of a playoff caliber rotation. It's just Steve was Hall of Fame level, and Jimmy Key was not quite Hall of Fame level. So he kind of got shuffled down into the into the next tier. Uh, and a funny thing about Key, like when he when he won his first the first start that he won because he came up as a reliever. He started he came came out of the bullpen for sixty three games in nineteen eighty four before going into the rotation. He was the first left handed pitcher. To win a game for the Blue Jays in over four years, left handed starter. Wild. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't even manage that. I, I can't even conceive of a, of a rotation with a dearth of lefties for that long in the modern game, right? Because it's left handedness is such a valuable commodity in and of itself. Um, and then the ability to, you know, not be susceptible to the same lineup over and over again is is also something you want on your team, 100%. Uh, yeah. And then yeah, all mean, the parks in the American League East with, that are good for left-handed hitters, you want to... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it just seems to me like, yeah, that's, that's not what like, you want. We're not talking about a year where they didn't have left-handed starter win a game. We're talking about four. <laughs> I mean, the, so Paul Mirabella was the one who got... He got the last win in the last second last game of the 1980 season. And Jimmy Key didn't get one until 
five. So 81, two, three, and four, they had zero. <laughs> That's absolutely insane. They really needed Jimmy Key. <laughs> yeah. And I think um I think to the Steve and Key thing as well. I, the impression I always got was that Steve was Steve was the firebrand, you know getting pumped up and and getting angry and everything else and key always seemed like he walked in after like having an afternoon cup of tea very calm very collected very precise and it was it was it was weird to see that that contrast right the lefty the righty the the whole thr hard thrower with the massive slider the the wicked curveball and the soft tossing lefty everything about them was opposite but the results were excellent over and over again yeah and i think that that's a really good descriptor of key. I mean, he was just, he didn't throw overly hard. He didn't have anything particularly nasty like Steve slider, which was an all world pitch, but he just was a calm command pitcher who would, you know, you could trust to take the ball, you know, throw 200 plus innings a season and not kill you. Like he, you know, he, he would give up some hits, not a ton because he had really good command as well as control, but he didn't give up a lot of home runs and he just did not walk people. I mean, he's uh, so I'm going to just throw out a random stat now, but like just because in the context here, he was the first American League pitcher in the DH era to throw 215 innings in a season and walked fewer than 30 batters. Only two people have ever done that in the DH era. Brad so Radke was, oh, was, was the, other the other one. Pedro Martinez. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, Brad Radke actually did it twice. But but yeah, but yeah so but hey, Hanky, he was the first one, and so when you can you had those differing styles and Clancy was sort of like Steve the same way. So key was kind of that different look that, to give the hitters as they go through a series. Yeah. And I think this is a very different era of baseball, right? Where, where pitchers were expected to grind it out um, into, into late innings, like throwing, throwing 250 innings was still happened to your number one starter, your ace. He was expected to go out there and do that. Um, so the getting later into games and losing some of your control was not unheard of. It, the, the, you know, walks plus hits per innings pitched of 1.25 was still great. Um, the, all of the, all of these numbers kind of get skewed. So for, for key to not be walking anybody in that era of the game is crazy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he that's just what his game was. And, and in the end it led to like his average season with the blue Jays, was 204 innings with 46 walks, which is just tremendous. And, you know, like with a whip, as you, you know, which would you, the stat you just said, of 1.18. That was his average season and an ERA plus of 123. A considerably above average starter who would throw a bunch of innings. And that's just a really valuable commodity, no matter what era you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we... We're unable to get um, we were unable to get key to the World Series uh, until his very last season. But before that, what what would you say were the career highlights for Jimmy Key? In well, I think it was definitely the '87 season. Obviously, the mm. the, J, the Jays remember that Jays fans remember that a little differently. But that was the best season of Key's career. He threw 260 innings. He led the majors in ERA. He led the majors in hits per nine, which you know, it's not what you expect from a soft tossing lefty. And he finished second in the Cy Young Award voting. And I, that was his third full season in the league. I think that was the point where it almost looked like he was going to take the mantle as the new ace of the staff. It didn't happen, but 
if we're talking about before the World Series years, that's definitely, I think, the 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 big moment for Jimmy Key. Um, we did get a question, which I will I will deke to now um, from Ellie Ellie Hart, a two parter, and the first part was, "What is your most iconic Jimmy Key moment?" Now I have I have the low hanging fruit one, but I will let you go first, and it will probably be the low hanging fruit. <laughs> key moment but we'll, we'll see if we have the, the same one in mind well most iconic jimmy key moment is probably picking off otis nixon in the 92 yeah. world series that would be the low-hanging fruits <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't think you can really pick a different one <clears throat> um especially given the way that that series had started uh you know like the especially in game two when david cone pitched because cone never held runners very well the braves just ran wild and they even stole a couple of bases off Guzman too, because Guzman was also not very good at holding runners. And so when Otis Nixon got on to lead off the game in Game Four of that series, so here kind here of is, for me, this is the crazy part of remembering that. I've 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 obviously revisited the moment a bunch of times because of highlight reels and everything else. I don't, you know, it's however many years ago. I don't remember the specifics of that until I go back to the highlight reel. But I remember Jimmy Key, who didn't... He walked Nixon, did he not? Uh, I think Nixon got a single to right field, as I remember it. So I remember, though, first batter of the game reached base. And emotionally, I was like, "You like, Jimmy Key, you got to do this for us, man. Like, you're supposed to be the stopper here. We got to get this on the right track. Um, Like, that whole... Like it can't, it can't be like this, right? And immediately he picked Nixon off and the place went crazy. And I was like, oh, anything is possible. I like this. I like playoff baseball now. I remember the instant flip of the switch when Nixon was called out. Oh yeah, I, there's, I don't think there's any Blue Jays fan that didn't have that exact same kind of, oh no, and then, oh my God. <laughs> Um, and if you're, you know, if you're like the right age, you, you know, the, 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 you had the world series video from 1992 and Jimmy key is a little trash talking in the video, which is great. Um, cause you know, they got that Southern drawl, the soft spoken guy, trash talking the Braves, which I found very funny. <laughs> uh, so, so you're talking about like the, his moments before 92, right? Cause I assume that's why you <laughs> rephrase it that way. So you could ask this question. Yes. The funny thing about that 92 postseason, Jimmy Key was not in the rotation in the American League Championship Series. They went with a three-man. They went Morris, Cone, Guzman, Morris, Cone, Guzman. And Key pitched a few innings in relief. And I think game four, I can't remember which game it was. But he, but yeah, so he had a three ERA that season. Like it wasn't like he was a, you know, like he was at the end of his rope. He was a, still a great pitcher, but for some reason they decided they wanted playoff hero, Jack Morris to start three times, even though. So it wasn't 3. that great. Five, three ERA, but uh, I was terrible in the postseason. Um, um, again, I don't remember the reasoning, but it may have been something about Chicago's lineup back in the days. No, this you... is the, this is Oakland. Oh, Oakland's lineup in 92. Um, sorry. 93 was Chicago. Um, yeah, maybe it was something about Oakland's lineup in the extremely small sample size. You know, someone was someone was you know four for eight against him, so they they decided it was no good. I can imagine that kind of decision happening in 1992. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, but, you know, it just is still sort of kind of a, a kick Weird. in the teeth, I think, to, you know, like if you're, if you're Jimmy Key, right, you were like the loyal soldier for – from 1984 to 1992, he was the one consistent pitcher because Steve was, he you know, he, he was still around technically, but he was injured and he hadn't been in any good in the last couple of years. And then, yeah, it just, Snub. it didn't, yeah. So I, I think that he probably was not overly happy about that, which is what made his performance in the World Series that much bigger because he, in that game four, he threw into the eighth and he only gave up one run. And he tipped his cap leaving, knowing that that was probably his last start as a Blue Jay. As he was to head off to free agency, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. I, I, I mean, that was so that obviously like the moment that you answered the question from L was still the pickoff. But I considered that. Yeah, I mean, it's close. It's funny that the two most iconic Jimmy Key moments are in his last perform last start as a Blue Jay. Uh, significant single games were hard to come by in this era, which is probably going to come up when we discuss our hitter. Uh, but is there anything else you'd like to run down with Key before we move to uh, Frederick McGriff? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so we're talking about this World Series, right? Jimmy Key won Game 6. People don't necessarily remember that. He was the winning pitcher in Game 4, which is the only game, by the way, that uh, didn't the involve starter. a win in the last at-bat for the Jays. The only went from a starting right. pitcher, as you were going to say. Yeah. Uh, but in game six, he actually started, he pitched the 10th and the most of the 11th. People remember Mike Timlin fielding the bunt, but Key started the inning. And if it weren't for Alfredo Griffin booting a double play ball, the Jays would have won that in game four, two, and he would have won it as the, the pitcher on the mound. And he actually suggested being taken out, which is the thing that people don't necessarily know. When Tim, when Cito came out, he talked to Key and Key said to bring in Timlin. Not a wrong decision in retrospect, but that uh, that is a guy whose head is in, I think, the right place in that moment, right? Yeah, I think so, too. Um, <laughs> and, and another funny thing about Jimmy Key is that he also was the starting pitcher in 1992 in one of the worst losses in Blue Jays history. <laughs> they lost 22-2 to two to the Brewers. Maybe that's why he was <laughs> kept out of the postseason, because that was... <laughs> That, that was pretty late in the season, as I recall. It was in August. Yeah, I, I think it was first week in August or something. I know, I know it was in August. But yeah, that that series against the Brewers was was a, a serious gut check moment for the 1992 Blue Jays because it was like, how is this team possibly playoff bound playing like this? Because the whole series was crap, but the the 22 to three game was like 22 to two. 22 to two. It, it was it was the can't anybody play this here game moment of that season. Yeah, Friday, August 28th. So, yeah, almost September, right? Just before the rosters expand and you got you got the wheels coming off against the Brewers, who were good, but not great. They ended up, like, almost catching the Blue Jays. They only finished a couple games behind them in the standings. Ah, the old divisions. Yeah. Um, and just, like, so that, as you said, he went off into free agency after that. Like, not talking about leaving as a hero, right? The guy, yep. <laughs> the guy... He gets them into the World Series, wins both games that he he appears in, um, and then went up to New York and finished top three in the Cy Young voting twice <laughs> in his first two seasons, and that was very gutting. But because the Blue Jays would not offer a longer than a three-year deal deal to a pitcher at that point, that was a hard and fast rule. Think about that. 
Yeah, that was the Paul Beeson rule. No more than three-year deals. I didn't think he wanted to give three-year deals at all, but that's not right because he did. Um, yeah, crazy. Uh, and then even even at age 36, he still had a 3-4-3 ERA, which, you know, the heart of the steroid era. And through 212 innings, that was his last good season. But, I mean, he had a great career. Yeah. Uh, what was his – do you have his final line with the Blue Jays? Yeah. So, well, I, I, I do it – I don't include his first year where he pitched entirely out of the bullpen because – it's things really... strangely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he, he finished up as a starter. He started 250 games. He threw 1,633 innings, ERA of 3.38, ERA plus of 1, 2, 3. So again, 23% better than the league average. Just like a really, really solid career. I mean, you know, he was 112 wins and 76 losses. Not a ton, but not nothing either. And that's... That's really good. I, and, you know, it's that's over a span of eight seasons. So, anyway, it was it's too bad it wasn't longer that he couldn't stick around because obviously he was still great the next two years. Yeah. But, uh, it was, was not for it lack, lack of his quality that he had to go. Um, it was it was some really weird uh, decisions up at the upper level of management. We've never we've never seen those be a problem in Blue Jay history before either. So we shall leave Jimmy Key with a a, uh, a raise a glass and tip our cap to him because certainly I enjoyed the crafty lefty and all of his other pickoff moves and and a, a pitcher who you felt like you understood his uh, not understood you felt like oh if I had really applied myself I could have been Jimmy Key whereas I looked at someone like <laughs> I, you look at Dave Steve and you're like okay I, I don't think I could ever do what Dave Steve was doing out there with the baseball right but Jimmy it just seems so under control with key for me it was like oh and I'm left-handed so this <laughs> little extra sympathy there um put him on the level of excellence there's your final thought uh so we move over to the batting side and and I pick Fred McGriff who did not spend nearly as long in a Blue Jays uniform, but he certainly had an impact while he was here. Um, McGriff, left-handed hitting first baseman, who was not drafted by the Blue Jays, despite being uh, a Blue Jay from his first day in the majors for the first four and a bit years of his career. The most interesting things about Fred McGriff as a Blue Jay are how he got here and then how he left, which is really <laughs> weird. <laughs> He was uh, a Yankees prospect in the beginning. Um, and it it is hard to say these days, but the Blue Jays clearly fleeced the Yankees on this trade. So from the Yankees to Toronto, Dave Collins, an established major leaguer, Fred McGriff, and Mike Morgan. To New York, Dale Murray, no, not Murphy, Murray, a reliever, and Tom Dodd. Uh, Dodd, who I don't believe ever would uh play for new york at all um I, yeah yeah and you know what's funny about this the jays traded for tom dodd the year before with the yankees when they traded john Mary mayberry to the yankees and that was part of it. they wanted him back <laughs> and he was the, he was flat out released five months after he was traded um if you total up 10 Murray, months, 11 months after he was traded but yeah um you, uh, if you total up Murray's uh, total wins above replacement while he was with the Yankees in three seasons, he was negative 0.08 wins above replacement. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. It was funny because like the Jays got like great performance out of Dale Murray the year before. <laughs> 111 innings in relief of 3.16 ERA ball. And so the Yankees traded up. King's ransom for those two guys. Yeah, and because one, had had the Blue Jays only acquired Dave Collins, they still would have won this trade by any reasonable measure because Collins had a decent and a great season for the Blue Jays in the first two, in, the, in the next two years. But the fruit that they had to wait for to ripen the longest was perhaps the sweetest. It was Fred McGriff, who was a legit prospect uh, in 1982. He reached the majors at the very tail end of 1986 but finally got his you know his due from 1987 to 1990 with the blue jays uh in which he hit seasons in which he hit 20 34 36 and 35 home runs as well led as the league with the 36 yeah the, the 36 led the league um his ops in those years was 928 uh, last three years 928 924 and 930 uh the year he led the league in home runs he also led it led it in ops plus he got MVP votes in all three of those years. Um, yeah, I mean, what was to complain about with Fred McGriff as as a a young power hitting first baseman? Absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, and he wasn't just a power hitter. That's what was interesting about it. Like he, his last year with the team, he hit three hundred. Mm. The only person in the starting lineup to hit three hundred that year. So. We'll get to the trade in a minute. Um, but yeah, generally, his on-base percentage was above... Well, every year he played for the Blue Jays, it was above 375. So, uh, again, the fact that the Blue Jays got this guy for absolutely nothing um, probably affected how the New York Yankees have operated going forward. Considering <laughs> <laughs> by, how... by the way, that so just to jump on your, on your player for one second, but... That in 1990, he, he hit 300 with a 400 on base and a 530 slugging. That was the first 300, 400, 500 season in Blue Jays history. So that's the interesting part about how he arrived. And with that, the first 300, 400, 500 season in Blue Jays history, they traded him. <laughs> so my memory of this trade originally was that McGriff was nearing free agency or something like that. He still had three years to go before he was a free agent. Yeah, incredibly. Um, so the trade at the time was framed as Fred McGriff, power hitting young first baseman, traded for, essentially, like if you were to break it down by a guy, traded for... Um, well-known veteran RBI guy and homer hitter Joe Carter. Again, this is how it was framed at the time. And then Roberto Alomar, hotshot shortstop, now second baseman prospect, traded for established veteran Tony Fernandez, who was likely on the downside of his career. I think we would we would kind of say, okay, so you get the, the up-and-coming base stealer um, who walks more than he strikes out, um, who's a hotshot, you know, defender at second, and and you get the quote, an RBI guy, yeah, an all star, um, and and Joe Carter been an all star as well. So everything, you know, it just looked like okay. From the rather naive position, it looked like two great players going in either direction, but it almost seems, in retrospect, more like. 
the Blue Jays were trying to fill some very specific holes, and they knew that John Olerud was going to be apparently as fantastic as he was, and had even though he'd never played a game in the minor leagues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was on the team in 1990, so like he did play. Like they had seen a year of Olerud. But to, to trade away a 300, 400, 500 hitting third baseman, who a first baseman, first baseman, who, yeah, who consistently has an OPS over nine hundred, how dumb does this trade look? Look, if if John Olerud turns out to be below league average in the long run. Well, the crazy part about it is they didn't need to trade trade him because <laughs> they had a DH spot that didn't have anybody in it. Um. It's funny. So Andrew Arnold, who listens to this podcast and who wrote for us at BP Toronto, once wrote about how this is one of the worst trades of all time. If you just look at it in the framing in the moment, because Carter was coming off the worst season of his career. He was terrible in 1990. And they traded, as you mentioned, three years of Fred McGriff for a guy who had just had a 681 OPS. Yeah. But he also had 115 RBIs. Ah, yes, those RBIs. Mr. <laughs> Ribbies. The weird part is it worked out somehow. Do you want to know what the weirder part is? Joe Carter was the center fielder for that team. That still doesn't <laughs> make any sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing San Diego was doing makes any sense to me. Um, yeah, in the long run. So... In, in in his entire you know tenure with the Blue Jays, the most notable things Fred McGriff got was was uh, getting traded to the Blue Jays in what was obviously a uh, some sort of highway robbery trade, and then he left the Blue Jays also as part of a highway robbery trade in which he was the high value asset again. If you if you really view it context neutral, yeah, I I don't even understand. In the meantime, <laughs> though. I should note that he played 578 games as a Blue Jay, including those five of them in 1986. Um, he uh, managed 125 home runs, more more home runs than doubles. He only hit 99 doubles, um, drove in 305. He uh, had a 278, 389, 530 line with a 153 OPS plus in his time. Um, he got into it's really four seasons like he had yeah, five plate four. appearances in the first one <laughs> and and he got one uh playoff series in which he hit 143 so uh again we don't really have any highlights for the fred mcgriff playoffs unfortunately would you like the weird like completely meaningless trivia hell you who do you think you're talking to exactly <laughs> um they are both home runs because that's what Fred McGriff did best. Number one, he was the first person to what? To homer where? At the dome? Yes. Yeah. He was the first person to hit a home run in the Sky Dome. Um, in what significant uh, uh, Blue Jays historical sense did he hit a home run? Where they hit 10 in the game. And he was the... He was the ninth, I think. No, he was the tenth and final home run the in the ten okay. home run game. Yeah, uh, yeah, he didn't. I, 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 I didn't look it up. I don't think he hit the ten thousandth home run in Blue Jays history. That would have been cooler. But um, <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty cool hitting the tenth home run in a game. No team's ever done that other than them. Yeah, absolutely. That that like if you look up Fred McGriff highlight, that comes up like a million times. Um, the, you know, the the post Blue Jay Fred McGriff. 
is also an incredibly, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss at all what he did after he left the Blue Jays because he continued to hit 30 bombs a year, thereabouts, just about every year for the rest of his career when he was healthy. Um, pardon me, he even had a renaissance as he went uh, to the tail end of his career with Tampa Bay and then a little time with Chicago, a half a season with LA as he was trying to get to 500 home runs. Um, and he just couldn't uh, couldn't get someone to put him on the field or put him in the DH spot enough times to get to that. So he ended up with 493 tied with Lou Gehrig, which I think is a perfectly fine place to end up if you're a home run hitter. Yeah. Speaking of guys who should have accolades, Fred McGriff, to me, is a Hall of Famer. He is, he is certainly in there if you're a big Hall of Fame guy, which I am. I don't know if I call myself a big hall guy. I know that that's weird to say when I'm saying Fred McGriff should be in there, but I guess it comes down to the whole clean versus not, right? This guy mm. was was slugging at the same level before steroids were prevalent in the game as he was when they were prevalent. So the suggestion is that his skill level never really changed. Like there are a lot of guys who saw their numbers inflate. He did not. Um. The the if you look at the the you know the Jaws standards, um, he is below the the average first baseman Hall of Fame. He's the thirty second, uh, and there are only 20, easy, 22 first baseman Hall of Fame. Yeah, it does. Which right, which is this is the point I'm trying to make though is that like if you think Fred McGriff was clean in the steroid era, he's gonna look worse relative to his peers. Yes. Which will affect his war. <laughs> it's really hard to divorce someone from their era, though, right? Like, you, you can be believe he was clean, but you also can't prove he was clean every single year. You know what I mean? No, no. I, I Look, I'm not about to proclaim guys clean and dirty because that's just like you just – it's the worst slippery slope you can go down. But I, I just look at his numbers and they were just so consistent all the way through despite the errors he was playing in. And it's just hard to imagine that when everybody's numbers were going inflated that his were – going the other direction even slightly down a bit but whatever i mean i i, I just i i like the idea of fred mcgriff hall of famer <laughs> yeah and I, I mean i again i i think if you expand the hall of fame to to not be under the weirdly restrictive ballot rules that there are i think mcgriff at least stays on the ballot long enough to get a conversation going um uh mcgriff stayed on the ballot he was on there for all 10 rounds for all 10 years I mean, yeah, he just never got above thirty nine percent. I can see why, uh, but at the same time, I can, I I don't think you're so wrong. I. You know, no, no, no. I I think there's a very good case to say he's not one. Just to me, he is. The Hall of Fame in your heart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they they've installed the Hall of Fame in Josh's heart. Everyone, what the heck? <laughs> no one's allowed to visit, <laughs> lest they trample upon your blood vessels. Um, yeah, so that is a, a sort of overview of Fred McGriff and Jimmy Key, two of the most iconic, I think, players of that era, uh, although there are obviously more on the list. Um, you know, let us know on Twitter if you would like us to change eras or to change, uh, change up players, and uh, we can come back in a little while and do this again if you found it interesting. Uh, before we go any further, though, I think we'll take a short break and then we will come back with a couple of questions related to said Blue Jays era from you self-same folks on Twitter. 
And we're back. And believe it or not, we were discussing disco stew during the break. So if you've got any weird, completely irrelevant Simpsons references, hey, we're your guys. Uh, just said, but, hey, we're your no, guys. But, hey. You know. um, but if you have questions about baseball, well, that didn't work. It didn't work at all. <laughs> what the, I don't know what the heck's going on. If these trends continue. If, uh, why don't I? Why don't I do it uh, this way? Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First, I ask a question, then you ask a question. Then how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? I almost didn't get the question in the first place. Holy moly! Where is my keyboard at? Uh, okay, so. Uh, the second part of Ellie Ellie Hart's question what is, what is your most iconic uh, Vic Carapazza moment? Uh, when the Blue Jays fans started a change.org position to get him fired because they're so upset about his strike zones and his ejecting of Blue Jays players. Uh, I second that emotion. Um, two questions from Brian Donnelly. So... Who was your first prospect you had over the moon expectations for? Ooh. Oof, that's a good one. Eddie Zosky. Yeah, that was where it was. Uh, yeah, that was so Eddie. Oh, on a sec. Let me get a yeah. little context here. So Eddie Zosky was, I mean, this is when I remember I had one of his, uh, I had his prospect card because I had the upper deck and they put the, 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 the top prospects thing. I don't know when, know when they started doing that or when they stopped doing it. But uh, he, he was one of them. And I don't know what I mean. Was I liked his name or something. I don't know why I thought that he was great. He was like, he was appearing on Baseball America top list. He was number 22 at one point. But I remember I got his autograph because I was a kid at spring training. I was like, oh, this guy's going to be good. And then he was <laughs> not happening. Just not uh, for me, it was, uh, it was Derek Bell. Mm, I'm, same I'm timeline. Sure. Yeah. I mean, 1991 came up, uh, stunk in 28 at bats, but then he was going to get time to play in at 23 years old in 1992. And, you know, for the world series blue Jays, he hit 242, 324, 354. I was like, God, I don't know what's going on. And they traded him. And I was like. I guess he's not a prospect anymore that I care about. <laughs> What's your favorite Derek Bell moment? I know there's some silly off the field story about Derek Bell. It, my favorite moment is when they raffled off. Oh, they, his car. They did a, his truck. <laughs> yep. Joe Carter drove it on the, the field. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't know it was a joke. So he's, they show him in the dugout and he's like, ducking behind things and looking at semi oh my god he was so pissed <laughs> it's like dude it was they're just hazing you as a rookie oh man um yeah that was that was my big prospect part two of that question or second question was what was your favorite jay's baseball card when you were a kid you can go first uh roberto alomar although he appears to be a lousy human being made some fantastic baseball cards uh People love to catch him in action. There is a 1994 Topps Stadium Club card. It is taken from the third base dugout angle. And Alomar is about two steps into stealing second base. And it is just such an iconic card. He's like leaping in midair. Uh, it is a, a very, very cool action shot. So Ooh, that's a good card. Yeah. So for me, I had a I had an autographed Joe Carter baseball card, 
from when I was eight years old. I still have that. So I think that's pretty clearly the answer. Um, there is another card from that era. It's not a Blue Jays card, but it stands out as one of the greatest uh, baseball card photographs for me as well. Another action shot. It is Carlton Fisk card, and I think it might be, even be his last card in his last year of play. Fisk is waiting for the ball, uh, and chugging home in the foreground of the card is Cecil Fielder, and I think it's Rob Deere. It might be Pete and Cavilia, but I think it's Rob Deere who is telling Fielder to slide. <laughs> so uh... just... The anticipation of this moment, Cecil Fielder and poor old Carlton Fisk, who has no knees by this point, about to collide. <laughs> so I'm looking at this card now. I pulled it up while you were yeah. talking, and it is hilarious. Also, it's like Fielder is in the foreground of the photo. It's yeah, a it, weird choice. It could be Cecil Fielder's card. You wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, 1991 oh, tops. Cecil uh, uh, Carlton Fisk. That that is it, one of the few sideways cards of that that um, set as well. Pretty funny. <laughs> uh, um, so there was one one more question. Yeah, it was from Prairie Jays at Jays Prairie. Who was your first ever favorite Blue Jay? This Prairie Jays first one was Jose Cruz Jr. Um, my first ever favorite Blue Jay was for sure Juan Guzman. Um, just. The came out of nowhere with this crazy pitch that completely flummoxed batters. And also the frustration of every time something went wrong for, for Juan, whether it was a hit or a walk or anything else, he got incrementally slower on the mound. <laughs> Even rain delay. If it was, you, you knew a Guzman start was going okay because it was actually going. If it was going badly, it just, it just plain stopped. It just, it was like on the radio, you were like, Tom Cheek would run out of stuff to talk about between pitches. It was bad. It was um, it was a, such a, a common thing that, you know, seven-year-old me was totally aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> so there was also one other thing about Juan Guzman that once he, I mean, he won 10 games in a row as a rookie, which was like a crazy number. Him and Timlin together were putting up these really cool numbers. But... They made a commercial for him once they realized he was going to be good. And it was from the Dominican Republic to Toronto, 60 feet, six inches at a time. And that tagline has st stuck with me for 30 years with these black and white photos of, of Juan Guzman and, and, and close-ups and everything else. So, yeah. That's a good one. Juan Who Guzman, also, first second, ever Guzman also holds the record for most wild pitches in a season. Yeah, I felt that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I still loved him, though. Who was your first ever favorite Blue Jay? Jimmy Key. <laughs> okay, well, I only know that. But he, for, it's funny. So, but my second favorite player at the time was David Cohn. He was not on the Blue Jays, but it was because I had RBI Baseball 3 for the Nintendo, and he was awesome on the Mets. Even I don't know why it wasn't good, and it was Cohn. You know, it's not like it was – I had any idea what the players looked like or anything like that. I just – I liked Cone. Maybe it was his name. I have no idea. But he was awesome. He led the league in strikeouts so many times. I remember that. So when the Jays got him, I was like, oh, my God, they have my two favorite pitchers on the same team. <laughs> I remember someone talking about uh, they would often announcers would go, that's David Cone, C-O-N-E. And it was like code for not Jewish. <laughs> like you should know that it's not David Cohen. Jeez, oh, Wow. I, I, did, I didn't even make that connection when you said that. Um, it's like that's the know, only reason you're spelling that. <laughs> so here's a, is a goofy stat. 
just talking about Cone because I talked about Key enough in the first part. <laughs> yeah, we covered him. So in 1992, David Cone led the major leagues in strikeouts, but did not lead either league. Yes, because he got traded while he was leading the National League. Yeah, he was, so he had 214 strikeouts when he was traded, and Smoltz finished with 215. Sad So he lost by noises. one, despite, yeah. not play, despite making eight starts in the other league. How good was David Cohn? That good. Also a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame. And I think it's less controversial to say that about Cohn than it is about McGriff. Indeed. So, uh, given all of that, uh, we should move on to the sad, sad reality. Did you know... Josh, that the players are locked out. They are? Yeah. So that's uh, why we haven't been doing podcasts. Right. Yes. That was what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, it seems like they have received two offers from the ownership of said baseball team, uh, both of which, from what I've heard from the leaks, are pretty, uh, what's the word? Lousy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so we're recording this on the 20th which is a thursday and the so the players are set to give their counter on monday the 24th i guess that's what that would be and we'll see how that goes i think that once we see the counter and see if the players are still saying the exact same things that they said both teams are still that sides teams both sides are that far apart still it could be a long way away from resolution but if one of the sides moves a little bit noticeably then at least we can say okay there's something happening yeah because those first two offers did not include the short shortening of the you know pre-agency pre-free agency control period on the part of the owners there was nothing offered up there um they offered some rather i would say modest promises to increase the salaries of non-arbitration eligible players um did they do much anything else really was, was there a bone even thrown at this point? Um, I mean, yeah, they raised the, sal the, the the lower end salaries a little bit. Uh, there's not much that else that seemed overly noteworthy. I think in until you get to a, you know, some real numbers about revenue sharing percentage, uh, and the players start to head back towards fifty percent, um, nothing's happening. Well, that's you're talking about the revenue split, revenue sharing, yeah. and baseball. Yeah, that's what I'm different. sorry. I mean, yeah, I mean revenue split between players and owners. Um, yeah, so they'll never do that though, because like there'll never be anything tied to revenue because the the players don't want caps, and anything that ties them to revenue would have to involve a salary cap. I, I but the offer has to include some kind of economics that indicate the players getting a bigger share of the pot, whether whether or not that that's tied to a specific number. But right. yes, I totally to be, agree. Yeah, some way, some way for the players to make more of that money within the, the structure, right? Um, I thought. Oh, sorry, the, the only bone they threw was removing the free agent compensation. That oh yeah, which is actually the first time they've done that ever. So that's interesting, at least. Um, free agent compensation, as we discussed in our last, oh, it was patrons only podcast. But uh, the, uh, hey, you I'm, should sign up for the Patreon. You right there. You should yes, put a dollar in. Yes, you get some in. extra pellets confidence where we talk about the history of free agency and things like that. Um, yeah, so like that's been in there since the early 80s. Since free agency existed, actually, there's been free agent compensation. And if they're, this will be the first time that they're willing to give that up. So that is 
that at least is noteworthy, even if the rest of the offer was kind of, there's no chance it was going to be accepted. And also the wording out of it is that both sides thought it wasn't going to be really considered. So like, why make the offer? <laughs> just, just to start. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they're going to come back on uh, the Monday. Um, and hopefully we, we have some, some movement. Although, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, Hey, if, uh, if we lose some games and the players get a better deal in the long run, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. I don't think either of us is going to disagree with that concept. Um, I mean, we're, we're pretty, I think clearly pro labor in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, one thing that, so the owners have said they refuse to discuss change in arbitration or free agency eligibility, like to, to get in earlier or the revenue sharing model. <laughs> Those are the three things that the base the players want to change. So this could be an interesting staring contest. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, we have, of course, uh, had time to find a do-over. And it actually is from today. So I'm going to play the do-over uh, noise. All right. What would I do different? Well, well, I've never actually made a mistake. There have been a few, let's call them, stananks. That could be worthy of a do-over. <laughs> Today's Stenank comes uh, via Josh from Stu Sternberg. Would you like to tell us about Stu? Yeah, I actually almost would have gone with, the, in, in retrospect, the quiet part out loud and what <laughs> version of our do-over, and I'll tell you why in a sec. But uh, so it was announced today that the MLB owners have killed, or the, the, the competition committee or whatever version of the ownership thing it is, turned down the sister city plan that the Rays theoretically had to play half their games in Montreal and half them in Tampa, which was always nonsense. And the idea that a city would ever build a stadium to play 40 games is crazy. But anyway, in his comments, uh, Sternberg said partial seasons are going to be the wave of the future in professional sports and that baseball wasn't willing to be the first. This is this is why it's the quiet part out loud. Like nothing says we want money more than we care about our fans than the idea that that's going to be the commonplace because that way you can get two local TV markets and sell out fewer games in both cities, so you can make more money at the you know uh, expense of the in person fans, right? The expense of the fan base because then they get to see half of their team's <laughs> home games. Like nothing says pure capitalism more than that. Well, especially since you're going to make try and make both municipalities pay for both new stadiums that you're going to need for this special new split team. Yeah, I mean that's an entirely separate concept. The idea of like you're not even paying for the stadium, but which is socialism. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just this idea that like this is the wave of the future because all we care about is money. We capitalize the profits, uh, Josh. We socialize the costs. It's that's important. How they always operate. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I would also like to give a, a, um, a do over out to Christine. Um, I don't know who Christine <laughs> is, but if you watch this video and I'm hoping Josh can put it on at least the Patreon post from, from Twitter, um, Christine did not mute her mic during Stu Sternberg's, um, uh, short statement and repeatedly someone asked Christine questions and her name continuously popped up in front of covering over everything on the zoom call um while sternberg tried to speak uh his nonsense in the background so uh next time christine mute <laughs> on the conference call by the way okay so people were actually like you know, newscasters were putting it out 
like the the here's what Jude Sternberg had to say hashtag Christina. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love I I love our post pandemic world where everyone is relying on technology that they don't quite understand to communicate with people. <laughs> so, I think uh that brings us to the end of this, the 225th Artificial Turf Wars, except for the fact that I, I extend to you my invitation to have a final thought. Oh, boy. Um, not a lot of thoughts going around <laughs> at this point, to be honest. I guess, I mean, technically the minor league stuff is still happening. The Jays just signed a bunch of you know, people that they probably had agreed to since they were 13 years old from the Dominican and Venezuela and Panama and <clears throat> lots of catchers again. Jays love their catchers. <laughs> uh, we actually love some of them in the major leagues. Finally, you know, Alejandro yeah. Kirk appears to be a legitimate major league catcher for once. Um, my final thought would be today's rumor that Carlos Correa's pre lockout asking price was $330 million. So I'm just going to write Edward Rogers a quick note to let him give him the update. Uh, and hopefully he'll just get on that as soon as the lockout's over. Sounds good to me. All right, good. Okay, we got that covered. Which is to say, I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead 2010, and you have been Joshua Hausam at Joshua Hausam. And this, this has been Artificial Turf Wars number 226. And we will talk at you again in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.